Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart. And before I introduce my guests to you, what I want to say is this is such an important topic in our culture today that I wanted to actually deal with this in two episodes. So we actually sat down, I sat down with the authors of a new book called Critical Dilemma, Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer. It will be out the week after this episode airs, and it will have already been out if you listen to the second episode. So we've split this conversation into two parts. The first part is what is contemporary critical theory and why Christians need to pay attention. And the second part is all about engaging contemporary critical theory. As you just heard me almost not say it right, it's really tough for me to say contemporary critical theory because I want to keep saying critical. You'll hear this over and over again in the episode, which we've already recorded. And so I really wanted to dive deeper into some of these conversations. And especially when there's two guests on, it can often be difficult because, you know, you get to the introductions, you get to the basics of what the book is about, maybe a couple of fun facts, and all of a sudden you've got five minutes remaining. And I didn't want that to happen. And I think you'll find this one of the most chock full of information episodes. You'll probably want to listen to it over and over again. And then, of course, by the time part two comes out, you'll be ready to listen to it. So part two actually is really interesting because they do talk about some of the positive elements of critical race theory and some of the things that Christians need to avoid doing in order to be heard by the culture. So I will offer a slight disclaimer. There is a few points at which we talk about issues of sexuality and gender that may not be appropriate for your children. I'm going to let you decide what that is. I would recommend maybe listening to it first. It's probably only a few moments, a few bits of the conversation, but I wanted to give that heads up for anybody listening to this because it is important that we use discretion when allowing children to listen to and talk about these topics. And of course, that is your discretion. So let me introduce my guests. Neil Shenvey has an AB in chemistry from Princeton and a PhD in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. He is the author of Why Believe a Reasoned Approach to Christianity and is widely recognized for his writing on critical theory. Pat Sawyer has a BA in psychology from UNC Chapel Hill, an MA in communication studies from UNC Greenboro, and a PhD in educational studies and cultural studies from UNC Greensboro. All right, so without further ado, we're going to jump into part one of the conversation on contemporary critical theory. All right, we are on with Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer. Thanks for talking to us about this critical topic, guys. (laughs) Thank you for inviting us. Good to be here. Neil, this is your second time on the show. You actually came on to talk about critical theory. You hadn't yet finished this book, but it was uh, in the final throws, I guess you could say. Pat, you're new. Would you guys be able to introduce yourselves a little bit, give a little bit of your pedigree? And it's probably important at the outset to demonstrate that you guys aren't just some guys who hate wokeism. You guys know what the heck you're talking about. And there, there's a reason why you're tackling this and God's put you in, in a particular position to write a book like this. Well, Pat, you start because I am just mumbling around, stumbling around as a theoretical chemist. So you have the credentials. Why don't you start? <laughs> yeah, you are fondly referred to as the chemist. That's for sure. Well, yes, I'm Pat Sawyer. Doug, thanks. It's wonderful to be here. I became a Christian at about age 19, just before I went to UNC Chapel Hill undergrad. And when I started out at UNC Chapel Hill, I started to, to grow in my faith and I got into apologetics on some level, general apologetics, and I began to do that 
an LA sense with the church speaking at universities, different colleges around UNC Chapel Hill. And my work life was, as when I got out of college, was in banking and financial services. And I continued to do uh, apologetics from a, a general standpoint. At a certain point, I felt after I was in the banking and financial service industry for about 20 years, 17, 18 years. And during that time and towards the end of that, I began to feel like God was pressing me to get more and more into the arena of ideas. And so I began to pray about what would God have me do, maybe change careers entirely. I thought about perhaps God was calling me me to be a pastor And then I went through some church planning stuff, and I thought that, well, maybe God's not doing this, but he certainly is continuing to to press me to maybe go to grad school. And so what I ended up doing was getting a master's in communication studies and a PhD in educational studies and cultural studies. And so I retired out of banking. I was a, a senior vice president, regional director at the time, and really made a life change. I continued to work full-time. It's something that I didn't have to think about. Okay, so I retired from the bank, and then I went to grad school full-time. And I chose the program that I did in terms of the Master's of Communication Studies because of the practicality of that. And then I also wanted to teach in college, so I went ahead and further got the PhD, and the PhD in Education and Cultural Studies. Education Studies and Cultural Studies is steeped in the critical tradition, And I chose it partly because I knew that it would be a challenge to biblical Christianity, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to get an understanding of a significant knowledge area that was counter to Christian epistemology, to try to understand it and then be able to be helpful in terms of being salt and light in the context of that knowledge area. And then I also felt God pushing me to be a mentor and to add value to my students, and to my colleagues. And that led me down the path of that PhD. And of course, when I was in the middle of that PhD, there's certain things that are dovetailing with common grace, certainly that I could champion. And then there's other things in the critical tradition that are directly opposed Mm -hmm. to Christianity, certainly. And that led me to become interested in these kinds of topics As a Christian, I was already concerned about justice issues from a a biblical Christian standpoint, certainly. And so that was part of what was galvanizing me in terms of my degree. And then it's important to note that my dissertation is about higher education and social justice in the context of higher education against Mm -hmm. the backdrop of neoliberalism, the idea that money is driving everything. And so in my dissertation, in my conceptual framework, the foundation is critical theory that builds to critical pedagogy, which builds to cultural foundations. And that means that my PhD is in the heart of the critical tradition. Yeah, yeah. And so about that time, a mutual friend introduced me to Neil, and he happened to be going to the same church where we go at this summit church. And that led to us beginning to have discussions around some of these issues relative to the critical tradition that were starting to impact the church, Neil was more dialed in to what was taking place with the church than I was in terms of the broader evangelical church. In fact, he came to me, 
when we first met, he was saying, hey, some of these ideas are really penetrating the evangelical church. And I was incredulous on mm-hmm. some, I was like, some level because I was like, whoa, whoa, that, that seems on to me. I need to pay more attention to that. And, and five, six, seven years later, here we are. Wow. Yeah, no, it's a pretty interesting dynamic that you went into that field and it's very much par for the course for a person who's really tuned into apologetics and wanting to do really good apologetics and understand what's out there. And so I really appreciate that about your journey, Pat, in terms of you just dove right in instead of keeping a distance and simply reading about it, which is essentially what I'm doing right now, reading about right. it more so than engaging, except for a few friends, more so than engaging a few things. So you were in the thick of it and you had to learn to think that way or at least wrap your head around it in a way that's more than just at arm's length. Right. And Doug, that's an important point. I am in the field. So I speak and I write and publish in the academy. And I do that in conferences that are in the critical tradition. So I'm not standing outside the field. I'm a relatively young academic because of my career prior to this. But now I've been teaching 10 years. I've been in the academy a decent period of time, even though it's not been 30 years. Yeah. But I am, I'm clearly in the tradition and have colleagues and friends and connections in the tradition. Yeah. Neil, our audience might know you if they've been listening for about a year. I had you on, I think it's episode 306 to talk about critical theory, critical race theory. And we had a great conversation. I also, by the way, just recently finished your book, Why Believe. And it was very good. I'll just pitch that for listeners right now. Although I I would rather them buy this book at the moment, no offense, (laughs) because (laughs) that's what we're talking about. But why believe? I thought it was really interesting that you use the gospel as a point of why believe as opposed to like convincing somebody to simply believe that there's a God. And then now why is the Christian one true? And that was a neat approach. That was kind of a pleasant surprise in a way, because that's not what I would have expected just based on the cover. So anyway, you've written that book. Tell us about some of your academic credentials. Apparently you're referred to in your circles as the chemist. So uh, <laughs> we have a chemist on our team at LCI. <laughs> well, that's more of a pejorative than a compliment on Twitter because the the charge is that, well, I'm just a dilettante. I'm an amateur. I'm not a scholar. (laughs) I'm I'm merely a a theoretical chemist, which is true. So I'll I'll be concise because I've been on the program before. But like Pat said, outside of this knowledge area, I got a PhD at UC Berkeley in theoretical chemistry. I became a Christian at UC Berkeley in my first year of grad school. And as you said, my, my main interest at the time was apologetics. And out of that interest came my book, Why Believe, published last year with Crossway. And so it goes through the standard arguments for why is Christianity true? How do we know there's a God, the Christian God? How do we know that Jesus is God's son, that he rose from the dead? And then, like you said, the last section of the book is probably the most innovative, where I talk about how the gospel itself is evidence for the truth of Christianity. It's not just the thing you get to after presenting the evidence. It is the best evidence for the truth of the Christian worldview. So that that book was quite good. And I had finished that, the first draft of that book, I think I'd finished it in 2016. Go back on my hard drive and just check. But at the time I had finished the first draft and then Pat was helping me pitch it to publishers. And so I met Pat and we were interested in this phenomenon in our culture and in the church, which has only gotten worse since then. Call it wokeness, call it cultural Marxism, call it critical race theory. We're not sure what to call it even now. No one is. But we began then writing together and he began directing my reading. So I have tried, like you suggested, to read primary sources. You know, Pat's in the field and he's telling me, well, read this book, read that book. 
And so you can see behind me on my shelf, I have a whole book of critical theories of various kinds, queer theory, feminist theory. I can't read the titles from here, but I am very happy to know that you're not the only person who doesn't only keep your books vertically. <laughs> you know, my wife would like me to. She's always getting on me to clean up my study, but I, like, I can't fit them. There are there actually are two layers in some places because I can't. Yeah. I, we have an entire wall-to-wall bookshelf and yeah. I just can't fit the books. And I have it. people like, oh, this is for show. I'm like, nope. I've read 85% of those books and the ones yeah. that I haven't read fully have probably skimmed from and uh, quoted from. Anyway, so what I will say is this, our current book, Critical Dilemma, which you've co-authored now, it's a secondary source. It's our analysis and assessment of critical theory from a Christian perspective. However, I will say that I'm proud of this book for engaging incredibly heavily with the primary sources. So I think we, we have over 770 footnotes. We have, without exaggeration, thousands of words of direct quotes from these critical theorists themselves, including block quotes. We're not just pulling out a phrase here. We're letting them speak. And so if you don't have time, I understand time's limited. You can't go and read 200 books on critical social theory. But if you read our book, you'll be hearing critical theorists tell you for themselves in their own words what they believe. And that's really crucial for Christians to get at mm -hmm. not just what we say they're saying, but they're actually saying to really understand their worldview, their perspective, and their ideas. Yeah. Well, just because I know, Neil, you might have actually, if I don't remember all the things that we talked about and what I said about myself and why I was into this topic, but Pat, to get you up to speed or to inform you both, one of the reasons that I was interested in studying at kind of starts with critical race theory, if that's the buzzword that's out there, a lot of people look that up, was because I was hearing a lot of like Republican legislators in the past few years talk about critical race theory and, you know, and then Trump sort of like banned it from, I forget what particular executive order or something he did. And so I was seeing things like Governor DeSantis was trying to eliminate critical race theory from curricula and all this kind of stuff. And I was hearing my friends on the left saying, these Republicans don't know what the heck they're talking about. Mm -hmm. They're just taking things out of context. They're making this the new boogeyman. And I was like, yeah, that tracks. That typically is what's happening. And so I'm like, let me go find out. I started reading and I'm like, hang on. No, this does seem to be, at least in some part, the threat that they think it is. The common retort, of course, is like, well, we're not teaching five-year-olds critical race theory, which we'll get to in this conversation. But that's kind of where I started on this in particular. The other element of that is the social justice element, which we could probably talk about in the second part of this conversation as it relates to the church, which is, I would say about 20 years ago, I was more interested in the social justice aspect of what was at that time kind of the emerging church. And one of the reasons I didn't become a full leftist was because I realized I needed to learn a little bit of economics. I did that and realized, yeah, no, we have limits to what we can do with each other and what we can do to each other and how we can cooperate that, that are actually within the moral frame of good ethics. So I didn't become a full leftist, but my heart is in that sort of social justice bent. So when I hear my leftist saying, well, critical race theory is things like, you know, it's just teaching honest history and that all the Republicans want to do is erase black history and indigenous history and whitewash it and whatever all those sort of things, the accusations from the left to the right are. And I was like, all right, well, so what do I need to read? And I reached out to some friends and I started reading them and I'm like, this isn't good. Like, <laughs> what on earth are you appealed? These are Christians that were suggesting this reading. Yeah. What on earth are you guys saying is true about this? Or what are you finding true about this that actually informs things? 
So that's kind of where I'm coming from is trying to understand. And I have a heart for communicating with people about this in a way that can say, okay, well, I can take this particular thing and say, yeah, we still experience racism and there is still systemic racism. And I can acknowledge something called white privilege in a provisional way, at least. We'll talk about that, I suppose. But this whole ideology just doesn't match up. And so what ends up happening, though, is those conversations are really, really difficult. And those conversations are difficult because, first of all, we don't agree on the terms. And more importantly, in my mind, you read the primary sources. So I read Delgado and Stefan. Yeah, I read that, the primary. The seminal and I'm text. This, yeah. yeah, the seminal text. And it's easy. It's 120 pages or yeah. fewer than that even. And it's not difficult. It's meant to introduce like high school level to critical race theory. Mm. And I read it and I'm just like, it seems to me that what people like James Lindsay are saying, they're saying, that's what they're saying. And everybody on Twitter is saying, James Lindsay just doesn't understand the primary sources. I'm like, well, how else am I to read this? Like <laughs> racism is a normal, I forget what the definition is, Neil, you probably have it memorized. But normal, like, permanent, and pervasive. That's the yes, standard How phrase, am I supposed yeah. to read that? Anyway, else? Well, you're just yeah. reading it wrong because you're not, you don't have a critical consciousness or whatever. So it becomes really, really opaque to actually have genuine conversations with people, which is in part why I loved your book, because you do engage these texts. You do engage what they're saying. So have you found the same to be true, Pat, in academia when you talk to people who are actually affirmative of this? Is that something you come across? I would say in the academy, most people are well-informed that are discussing this. I would say that so that in the academy, there's not a major disconnect about what critical race theory is. Now, with saying that, critical race theory and critical social theory in general is a fluid knowledge area. Yeah. It's not something that you would reduce to canonized dogma, and this is all that is. In fact, in our book, we honor and we acknowledge this feature of critical social theory that it's not by nature, essentialist in its uh, approach and in its in the way it organizes itself. With that said, there are meaningful things that attend, A, the crit critical tradition in general, and then B, various critical social theories that are part of the critical tradition. Each of those critical social theories do, in fact, have things that meaningfully define those knowledge areas that can be known and understood. Yeah. So both those things are at work. But I would say that when I'm in the academy or when I go to conferences that are in the critical tradition and we're sitting around and we're talking about these ideas, there is a, a good degree of unanimity in understanding, even though at times we might be wrestling over whether this particular viewpoint is best domiciled in critical race theory or not. There, there can be some back and forth on okay. that. And then also some back and forth on the various tenets that permeate critical race theory, 15 to 20, that we collect together and summarize together in our book, sometimes there can be tension around what does that tenet actually mean, not just theoretically, but on the ground in society and culture that can happen. But to your point, I'm often talking to some people in mediated environments, social mediated environments, or just people that are in my spheres of influence. They're not necessarily in the academy. And there are wildly different perspectives and understandings about what critical race theory supposedly is. And you hear all the time that, oh, it's just people that are concerned about racism. Mm -hmm. And it's way much more than that. Yeah. So yeah. to your point is well taken in terms of what you mentioned. Well, I mean, we're 
about 20 minutes into this conversation and we haven't yet defined our terms, which is probably <laughs> a good time to sort of pivot to that because you actually, as you acknowledge, you deal with the fact that this is not a monolithic single ideology or, you know, if you go with McWhorter religion, that this is very much a lot of people are vying for the best way to do it. And where do you put the certain terms and concepts? But your book is actually, I would say, really helpful in that because you get the reader realizing that very soon, this isn't monolithic. We can't just take it down by shouting, oh, well, that's just based in Marxism and we know that's bad. Like, that's just not a tack that Christians can take or for that matter, anybody can take, even though there's some elements to that and Marx mm -hmm. was sort of the first, the seminal work of that, unless you go back to Hegel. What are some of these terms that you're using in your book? You've used the term critical... No, sorry, contemporary critical theory. It's, I always mm -hmm. want to start with the word critical in the in this in it. So CTT, contemporary critical theory, critical race theory. We've got queer theory, which is mind blowing, by the way. Mm -hmm. Critical yeah. social justice, which is very much probably more of like the movement. Critical social theory, and then we obviously postmodernism, which a lot more people are familiar with and can a little bit more wrap their heads around. I don't need you to define every one, but what are the ones that are important to you that like, as you converse, as you advise people, as you advise Christians to converse with others in the church and outside the church to sort of wrap their heads around the most? So the way I describe it is that critical theory is this umbrella category today. So critical theory mm -hmm. used to be siloed to the Frankfurt School, a group of philosophers and sociologists writing the 1920s and 30s in Germany. They were called Frankfurt School and they introduced the term critical theory, the capital C, capital T. That was like their niche theory, right? But mm -hmm. since the 20s and 30s, critical theory has grown tremendously and has spawned entire disciplines like critical race theory, critical pedagogy, post-colonial scholarship, intersectional feminism, queer theory. These are all underneath the umbrella today of critical theory, lowercase c, lowercase t. So now there's this whole tradition that, is spot, that spans many different sub-disciplines like critical race theory, queer theory, critical pedagogy, et cetera. So all of those critical social theories fall under this broad heading. So we've, to, to try to cut through all of the fog, people want to describe, what is this whole tradition called? Uh, should we call it cultural Marxism? Should we call it critical social justice? Is it all just critical race theory? So we introduced the term contemporary critical theory because it has no, it's a very neutral term. There's no baggage associated with it. And we're, we're but why we use that term? Clearly these ideas are part of the critical tradition that started with critical theory. And if you still look at academics, we'll talk about critical theory today. And they're the, the form of critical theory that is having the greatest influence on our contemporary culture. So mm -hmm. the term contemporary critical theory is a good way of encapsulating all these ideas like, like intersectionality, equity, social justice, the gender binary, white privilege. All of those terms you're seeing are coming out of this yeah. category we're calling contemporary critical theory. So we have like diagram explaining why we yep. use this term. And one of our big things in the book is we don't focus on labels. Like if you're arguing over whether we should call this thing cultural Marxism, whether we should call it critical social justice, it doesn't really matter what you're going to call it. It matters are the ideas. The labels are less important because people can just swap the labels out. You'll If you say, well, critical race theory is awful, they'll say, well, that's fine. I'm not doing critical race theory. I'm doing anti-racism. Well, anti-racism is right, right. Well, I'm not doing anti-racism. I'm doing <laughs> something else. So it becomes a shell game. And we say, hey, let's yeah. cut through the noise. Pick whatever label you want for it. Let's address the ideas and ask, are these ideas at their heart true and biblical? That's the question we should be asking. Yeah. What do you think of the idea that when 
let me defend people who want to sort of slap labels on things like that because they want to say maybe a little bit more robust defense of it is like, you know, I use the whole, well, that's just Marxism or whatever. That's not a really wise approach on the one hand. But on the other hand, sometimes people want to say, well, that was sourced from standpoint epistemology. And we know that that's kind of false because epistemology is broader than whatever it is that we're experiencing. And so they want to ground it in like a sort of foundationalist perspective of like, well, if I can identify sort of the label, even if it's a little bit fluid, then I can say, well, that was founded in this sort of school of thought and that school of thought got it wrong. And therefore I can sort of dismantle your argument. I think that's why people are drawn to giving labels to things in this particular way, because they could just draw it back to, oh, well, that just came from the tree of Marxism. I, I know that's wrong, even though, you know, it's actually more than just that. There are two problems. One is that, like we've all been saying, the ideas we're seeing in the water today, on social media, on Twitter, in entertainment, maybe in, your, in books that you're reading, popular works, they don't even often use the term critical race theory at all. Say They don't even mention it. And if you ask someone, you say, wait, you just used this word, intersectionality or white privilege, that's actually coming out of critical race theory. They would say, what's that? I've never even heard the term critical mm -hmm, race theory. Mm -hmm. How could I be doing critical race theory, but I've never even heard the term? So when you use a label, if they've ever heard the label before, they will be rightly confused. They'll be like, there's no way I could be doing that. Now, that's a really good wrong. point, Neil. Yeah. yeah, they're wrong because... It's in the water now. You don't have to be reading Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell to be doing critical race yeah, theory because yeah. you're getting these ideas from you know, MTV and CNN and everywhere. <laughs> so that's one reason. The other reason is that if you really get into the scholarship, you'll realize, for example, that, that there is a connection between, say, critical race theory and critical theory and Marxism. There is. You can, it's historical. You can see it in our book. We lay it out. And yet a lot of times these disciplines were not just incorporating Marxist ideas, but they were critiquing them. So when you say, for example, well, this is just cultural Marxism, people can, yeah. if they're actually knowledgeable, they might turn around and say, in fact, actually, what you're pointing out is antithetical yeah. to Marxism materialism, for example. And there, so the problem is twofold. One is that when you're critiquing people at a very lay level, they often don't know the terms they're invoking. They don't know where they come from. They just heard them on the radio. They're yeah, using them. Right, they're, okay. They sound hip. And on the other hand, if you are critique people at a, at a very high level in scholarship, they'll say rightly, no, you don't understand these ideas. What you think is just Marxism is actually far more complicated than me throwing out references to people mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. uh, Horkheimer and, and Marcuse and, uh, and Benjamin. And in both cases, you're going to weaken your critique. I think what we want to do is strengthen it by focusing not on labels, but on ideas. And so when someone says, for example, well, I think society is divided into oppressor groups and oppressed groups. You don't have to immediately scream, that's Marxism. You can just say, well, is that true? Forget the label. Is that true or not? And why do you think that? So I would just press your attack there and not the level of what words we're using. Doug, if I can mention that, yeah, one thing that might be helpful is to think about this pathway. Historic critical theory, Frankfurt School critical theory, where that term critical theory, capital C, capital T, really originated the School of Social Research in Frankfurt, Germany. Those theorists, their campaign was both an extension and an amendment to Marxism. So somewhat of a critique, an extension and an amendment to Marxism. Today, in the academy, particularly over the last 20, 30, 40 years, critical social theory has been prominent. And within critical social theory, 
are various critical theories, as Neil mentioned, critical pedagogy, critical race theory, post-colonialism, queer theory, and so forth. Well, critical social theory is both an extension and an amendment to historic critical theory. And so it's good to think about it that way. <laughs> so critical social theory today is both an extension and an amendment to historic critical theory, which is an extension and an amendment to Marxism, as I just mentioned. Now, our convention, Contemporary Critical Theory, we are taking four main ideas that are permeate critical social theory and collecting them in such a way that we can identify how those ideas are impacting society today. It doesn't, we're not saying that our convention of contemporary critical theory and the ideas that we have onboarded into that convention are the only thing that critical social theory talks about. Mm -hmm. That's a knowledge area of millions of words. But we do collect ideas that are having the most impact on the church and society. And all those ideas that we have organized come directly from critical social theory. And so this should be a helpful way for readers of, readers of our book to get their minds kind of wrapped around the larger critical tradition and yeah. that, and then also how we've arrived at this moment. Yeah. It might be a good time to share what some of those four things are. Yeah, so the four ideas under the heading of contemporary critical theory, and you'll, they'll show up, they do show up, as you point out, they show up in subfields like critical race yep. theory, queer theory. So in a sense, these four ideas, if you apply them to race, you kind of get critical race theory. If you apply these four ideas to gender and sexuality, you get queer theory. If you apply these four ideas to education, you get critical pedagogy. So these four ideas are really central to this entire tradition and are worked out in various subfields. So what are the four ideas? Number one, the social binary. So critical theorists today believe that society is divided into oppressor groups and oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, religion, and a host of other identity factors. That's number one, social binary. Number two is the idea of hegemonic power. And what does that mean? A hegemonic power refers to the ability of the oppressor group, the dominant group in culture, whether it's men or whites or heterosexuals or Christians, it's their ability to impose their values on the culture that those old white male heterosexual Christian values are taken for granted as natural, objective, neutral, rational, reasonable. They're just in the water. So again, so, so the hegemonic power is the power of these dominant groups to impose their values on culture in a way that appears to everyone as natural and normal and the default. And third, if so we're, we're all kind of brainwashed into these values. We're all part of the patriarchy. We're all part of white supremacy. We're all part of heteronormativity. We're all, those are just ideas we breathe in on a daily basis. And then, so how do you escape that? The third idea is lived experience. So we escape this cultural hegemony of white heterosexual middle-class men, we escape it by our experience as oppressed people. So a minoritized person, whether they're black or they're a woman or they're LGBTQ, they, through their lived experience, can recognize that actually these ideas are not neutral. They're not objective and universal. They're actually propping up the power and privilege of white, straight white men. And then they can, so they can break out. They can achieve what's called a critical consciousness or a liberatory consciousness. And colloquially, they get woke. They wake up to the reality of their oppression. And then because of that, they have the authority to tell other people about the reality of social injustice. And then finally, the fourth idea is social justice. The, the goal of critical theory today is liberating these groups from the social binary, breaking down these power dynamics so that no 
group imposes their values on society mm-hmm. and can all share power and achieve sort of true freedom and liberation from norms and, and values and structures yep. that, that hold people down and make them and marginalize them. So those are the fucking social binary, hegemonic power, lived experience, and then social justice. Hey, folks, I just want to take a break from our episode to ask you to consider becoming an LCI insider. We want everyone to feel engaged and excited about what LCI is doing. And the best way to do that is if you become a monthly supporter at $20 or more per month, you will become what we're calling our LCI insiders. You get some free gifts. You get an exclusive Crisis King magnetic lapel pin. We give you two copies of Faith Seeking Freedom. We send monthly ebooks months ahead of when they're released on our public website. You can get discounts on our swag on our online store, and you get exclusive invites to our quarterly live streams with the LCI staff. In addition to that, whenever we do publish something like a physical book like Strangers with Candy, we'll also send you those as well. So the best way to stay up to date on what we're doing and to support what the Libertarian Christian Institute is doing, including supporting the podcast you're listening to right now, is to become an LCI insider. So to do that, go to libertarianchristians.com slash donate and then choose recurring monthly gift and you'll be added to our list automatically. Thank you for your support and I'll let you get back to the podcast. So one of the values of your book aside from not just latching onto one term and saying this is what it is and talking about the value of contemporary critical theory as a moniker for this, is your discussion on slavery and the history of slavery in the U.S., which is one of the reasons why this is really, really difficult to talk about. You know, contemporary critical theory isn't just like, hey, we now need to deconstruct and we need to, you know, sort of rethink everything and so forth. There's also a component in U.S. history that makes it very tangible because there have been oppressors and oppressed in American history, very explicitly and very undeniably. And you spend a chapter which was not enjoyable, and on purpose, I think, talking about the history of slavery. Can you talk about why you thought it was really, really important to, it was pretty early on in the book, why is that chapter there? Because it seems to me that this is just a theoretical, you know, that could be the critique of this. It's like, well, why do we need to talk about slavery? That's past. This is just a theoretical battle of ideas that's winning the culture, and we need to fight it. Well, one of the reasons why we talked about it, Doug, is because of the prominence of slavery and Jim Crow in the, our history in the United States, from our informal beginnings to our formal beginnings as a nation. Slavery, 250 years of slavery and 100 years of black codes and Jim Crow laws has been a tremendous, large percentage and segment of our campaign as a nation. So we would be remiss not to talk about that dynamic and the reality of issues today that are still relevant to today relative to racism being prominent and being part of our fabric today are directly related to that history. And we recognize as Christians how egregious and evil and wicked that history is. And it just so happens in our context of our nation, whites have been oppressing blacks in a myriad of ways relative to that history. And that's not been reversed. You don't have the same thing going on there with blacks oppressing whites. And so we really have to understand what our history is about. Now, when we look at world history, when we look at societies across the planet, then every skin tone and every ethnic group is oppressing every skin tone and every ethnic group. And so we don't need to get it twisted and have some kind of false view of whiteness 
being connected to issues around genocide and slavery, mm-hmm. it being exclusive to whites. We get into how that terminology is deficient and really scandalous in certain ways. But in the context of our culture, in our country, in the U.S., we really need to understand this history. And we also want to make the case that you could be concerned about racism, strongly concerned to be fighting against it, both individually and institutionally, and not buy into critical social theory. You don't have to buy into critical social theory or critical race theory to mm-hmm. be someone who is strongly against racism and making a difference against racism. I'm someone who has been involved in protest when there has been corruption in the context of police relative to uh, issues of race. And I've engaged in peaceful protesting in my community to try to fight against racism when it has actually happened mm-hmm. and risen to an institutional level. So since Neil and I are sympathetic to these dynamics and these concerns, we had to include that history. We had to kind of, and, and again, it's truncated, it's scant in certain ways. We do, as you say, we do get into some very serious things relative to that history to mm-hmm. try to jolt the reader into recognizing that, oh, wait a minute, we don't just need to think that the civil rights movement, quote unquote, was just in the 1960s. And that's been almost three, two and a half generations ago. So what's the big deal? Everybody's yeah. equal now. There should be no issues. That is a, an incorrect way to think about our racialized history. And we wanted to demonstrate just how egregious that it was. And so that can then condition us to think about, well, what kind of action steps should we be taking now relative to trying to redress some of the ills and difficulties that are in our society that are connected to that history? Because part of our book, our book is not just about a critique of critical social theory. It's about a number of other wonderful things that we perhaps will get to here. But one of those things is how can we promote racial healing and racial unity while not giving in to false views of sin? Nobody's guilty of sins they hadn't committed. So we can't onboard that kind of historical oppressor mentality associated to whites. We can't onboard that bad thinking. But at the same time, we still need to take actions against the prominent sin of racism in our culture. I remember the first time I was really confronted with the... I would say the reason that I was, I would say confronted with, but like it really hit me in 2006. I remember watching Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, the I Have a Dream speech, and sort of realizing the context of like, wow, this was, my parents grew up during this time. That's not that long ago. And realizing that as a young kid, you think of everything prior to five years before you were born as ancient history. And it's all kind of this big box of way back then right? Or in the back then days, as my kids might have said when they were much younger, you know, dad, back then, did they? I'm like, back when? Oh, and you know, I don't know what era they're thinking of. The Bible days or like when yeah. grandma and grandpa were, were alive, right? Or were growing up. But the idea that it was, it, this is actually far more recent. And so I'm struck by that. And then also during that time, I was in seminary and we were dealing with these conversations about race. And at the time, critical theory and critical race theory were around in a way but that's not what we were talking about. Those weren't the words we were using. We were kind of just thinking about engaging culture and uh, being missional and all of this. But the people writing about it, the people saying, hey, we've, we are in a discipline 
who engages racism and tries to understand it and come up with a theory of why racism exists in America or racism exists in the West. And this is our theory. And if you're a Christian looking outside your field of discipline, that's more than just theology, like whether it's economics or and, and some others, maybe social science, where else is there to go except for the people who are talking about race? And so it seems, it doesn't seem that egregious, at least, to say to all these, I would say now more social justice Christians that, well, yeah, those are the experts you went to. They're just wrong because of these other reasons. And I realize we can't just label them wrong, but you know what I'm saying? Like, that's where they had to go. But like, where else was there to go? Because that's where the experts were. Yeah, and that's one other reason we included the chapter was that I think just in my experience, the way that a lot of Christians got sucked into this whole worldview is via race conversations. And we understand that and we're sympathetic to it, which is why we want to say, hey, we're not ignorant of this history. Yeah. We don't think, you know, in 1964, everything magically changed. We understand that racism is a continuing yeah. problem today. We're not papering over any of that stuff. We just want to point out there's a better way, a biblical way to think and talk about race and then act Christian way on issues like racism while rejecting firmly critical race theory. Like you said, there's a vacuum there because the church maybe did not speak clearly or sufficiently in today, today about racial issues. We just had this vacuum where then it was rushed, critical race theory rushed to fill that vacuum. It's like, this is the proper way. This is the scholarly way to talk about race. Yep. We want to say, wait, no, 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 no. We don't want to use that language. It's actually bad thinking. So this is like, we want to reach out to people that have bought into that thinking it's the only way to talk about racism and say, no, there's a better way. Actually, The Bible shows us a better way. Yeah, yeah. And we also bring it up, Doug, I mentioned 250 years of slavery. You know, slaves were first brought to this part of the world really in the 1520s. So we're looking at really 350 years. But one of the things that we're doing in this context, and even when we think about the slaves that were brought in the 1520s, they revolted and were able to free themselves and establish their own communities free as free people, th those who were first brought and then were able to free themselves from the Spanish, from their captors. And that highlights something. When we think of the massive oppression that's been given towards the Black community, look how the Black community has thrived and the resilient and the fact that not only has that uh, community survived slavery and Jim Crow, but even in the context of Jim Crow, think about the Harlem Renaissance, how the, the Black communities and the, the uh, innovators and the Black creatives and the artists and the intellectuals, the, the incredible things that they were doing that showed Black resiliency, thriving, and just brilliance. And so we want to highlight that as, as well and give honor to yeah. our fellow human beings, our, our brothers, sisters in Christ, who are people of color, particularly a black, who are part of this history, they were not defeated by the massive oppression that was placed upon them. And there's a sense, the human quality of that and the power of that, we wanted to highlight because it's inspiring to everyone mm -hmm. if we really give yeah. it some thought. Yeah. Yeah, well, it gives a another it gives a counter narrative to the you need to be a victim slash oppressed in order to rise out of the ashes. I mean, it, not that they weren't, not that they weren't victims, or not that they weren't oppressed, but there is more to it than that mentality per mm -hmm. se. Neil, you were saying that 
the introduction to critical theory was happening based on race conversations over the last 10, 20 years in, in the church. So I want to talk just a little bit about critical race theory before we move on to queer theory, because I think that's something really important to talk about. Do you think, where do you stand on the question of whether or not something like critical race theory or contemporary critical theory is a religion? You know, John McWhorter uses that term. A friend of mine who's a philosopher, he doesn't think it qualifies as a religion, and he spells that out in an, in an article. Where, where do you stand? I mean, I realize that that's kind of a, it's a fluid sort of way of thinking, but. That's right. I mean, I'd say define religion first, and I'll tell you sure, yeah, right, religion. Right, right. That's a religion. Do you very think it behaves topic. like a religion? And, and maybe that's, that's yeah. why it's not compatible? That's one of the reasons that it's not compatible, one of the many reasons we highlight in our book. So we frame it in terms of a, a worldview or a meta narrative. Yeah. And I like the word functions. It functions as a worldview or a meta narrative. And this is actually relevant to how Christians get sucked in via the race conversation into this worldview. Because they think they can take critical race theory and apply it only to race. And we're just going to take race and understand it via the lens of critical race theory. Now, even if you do that, I'd argue it's as bad. It's, it's embedded <laughs> with assumptions that are not true or biblical. Sure, but yeah. bigger problem is you can't do that. So if you look at, and we quote numerous sources saying this, exactly this, but critical race theorists themselves will argue that a defining element of critical race theory this is going back to 1993 and words that wound by Matsuda et al., the co-founders of CRT, they will affirm that critical race theory necessarily touches on issues like racism, sexism, heterosexism, classism, ableism, that all of these systems are interlocking forms of oppression that must be dismantled simultaneously. So critical race theorists will be the first to tell you you cannot apply critical race theory to race alone. You must apply it to all these other social oppressions. And that is where we're beginning to see why it's functioning as a totalizing worldview. You're seeing everything, whether it's race or class or gender or physical ability or religion, yeah. it's all being viewed in terms of oppressor and oppressed. So, so it that's isn't why just a legal theory because it, by definition, can't really just be a legal theory. Oh, they will. And we have actually, a, yeah, it's definitely not just legal theory. We have numerous quotes yeah. saying exactly that from critical race theorists. But more than that, it's not just a racial theory. It's, it really is part of a theory of everything, every social interaction. And that's why it's functioning, whether or not we call it a religion or call it a worldview, it's functioning like one. It's, 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 and it's claiming more and more of your conceptual landscape. It wants to, like Pat likes the yep. phrase, it colonizes your mind. It's pushing the boundary. What an ironic over and over. thing, right? <laughs> it is, yes. <laughs> that, that it's, it's claiming more and more territory. And it, it starts out, maybe the beachhead is thinking about race. And it's going to immediately, you're going to read Crenshaw and realize that Crenshaw says, because of intersectionality, well, race is yeah. gendered. There's gendered race and there's racial sexism. You have to then take gender into account and sex into account. And then you'll realize that you know, Derek Bell in a speech in 1995 talked about how sexuality is another axis of oppression. We have to talk about race and gender and sexuality as different locations for social oppression. So it, it grows more and more weighty in your mind. And it's yeah. not just about oppression. It's also about what is justice? Yeah. What is the law? What is morality? How do you know truth, epistemology? All of those questions are asked and answered by critical social theorists. So we, we and we, again, if you don't, if you say, well, that's just your interpretation, man, I, I'd say, <laughs> please read the book because in the book we have over and over, not, you know, yeah. critical theorists themselves saying, yes, it's functioning 
in a comprehensive way. It's addressing social reality. Yeah. And then we also have a number of cultural commentators on the left and on the right and in the center. We have atheists, we have Christians who are all pointing out, yes, indeed, it's functioning as a worldview. And lastly, we quote from several people who were part of the social justice movement who then left it, and they're looking back on it and saying it was a religion to us. So it's really unavoidable to say this is functioning yeah. in a very deep level in people's hearts. Now, and, but Pat, you can, so Pat, we do qualify that. So maybe Pat, you can talk about how there is a little bit of qualification when we say it's functioning like a worldview or religion. Yeah, I would just mention that everything that's been said is, is certainly correct. We also, Doug, mentioned as well that critical social theory or a certain critical social critical social theory in general or a certain critical theory does not necessarily have to function as a worldview for everyone that may intersect with it. So we're not superstitious, okay? There's a, and I'm part of the cr critical tradition in the academy at times, I'm using aspects of critical race theory in some of my academic work and some of my scho scholarship. Well, I don't fully embrace critical social theory and I have not adopted it as a worldview. With that said, and so we do give that qualification, and that's an important mm -hmm. one. Sure, yeah. At, at the same time, it's exactly as Neil has articulated here. This is a comprehensive knowledge area. The more you embrace it, it will become a functioning lens in terms of how you see the world. What is critical theory at the basic level? Critical theory is a method of analysis of the social yeah. world that prioritizes power, who has it, who doesn't have it, and why. And those who are left out of power according to the goals and ideals of critical social theory, those are the marginalized and the disenfranchised, and the campaign of critical theory is to emancipate and to enfranchise and give power to those who are outside of the status quo and outside of power. So if that is gonna be the approach then critical social theory is going to address issues of epistemology, how we know what is true. It's going to address issues of ontology, what it means to be a human being in the world. It's going to address issues of phenomenology, lived experience, our day-to-day -day lived experience. Well, if you're addressing those big categories and you're answering questions in those categories, now you have a meta-narrative and you have a worldview. It's undeniable. And the colleagues that I intersect with, we talk about, the issue of, is this a religion? The colleagues that I intersect with in the critical tradition that are very pro-critical social theory, well, what are they doing? They're reading texts that are part of critical social theory that they strongly revere. They're listening to and watching and paying attention to and reading various philosophers and theorists and sociologists and that are in the critical tradition and they're heralding them. They respect them greatly. They're they're listening to them, not just audibly, but in terms of how they're orchestrating and structuring their lives in terms of interest, in terms of the knowledge that they're growing in. And so this becomes a lens to kind of understand the world. And then when you're at that place, you're certainly at a place of having characteristics that touch on religion without question. And so yeah. the claim that is being made here that you've acknowledged is true. It does operate from a religious standpoint for a number of people, whether they identify that way or not. Yeah. I want to ask you one question about, uh, this is 
the Libertarian Christian podcast that we're having this conversation on. And of course, you even specifically address the question I'm about to ask, which is we have all these intersecting differences of oppression. You know, if you're a black female versus a white male or a black female who's trans versus a gay man who's white or Indian or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. we have all these just varying intersections of, <laughs> of oppressor, oppressed groups or whatever. And a libertarian and a conservative, and I mean, most people in the sort of the classical liberal tradition generally would say, well, this is why we need to just base it all down to everybody's an individual. We can, you know, we don't want to identify people based on their race or their tribe or, or whatever else. We just need to treat people as individuals. And that doesn't really, that, that's not where it leads when you're doing critical theory. And why is that the case? Because that's a very, it seems very like a natural, like if you think like classical liberal, you're thinking, oh, well, great. We need to not treat people based on these tribes. Let's treat them as individuals, which is kind of what I try to do, right? Why is that not the logical outcome? And why is that a false direction to sort of take the conversation maybe with somebody? That's a great example of why Christians need to be informed of what intersectionality actually is. Because it's a great quip you hear a lot. It's like, well, if you have all these intersectional categories, you get smaller and smaller and smaller groups. You have, you have black, lesbian, educated, female, blah, blah, blah. You narrow it down further and further. Why can't I just treat you as Neil? Exactly. And the argument is that the logical endpoint of intersectionality when you get these smaller and smaller groups is you get all the way down to the individual. So we might as well protect the individual. And yeah. that's a misunderstanding of intersectionality because intersectionality is committed to the idea that we're all part of oppressed or oppressor groups that you can't sort of step outside of your social location and say, I'm just an individual sitting here as an atomized individual in society. You'd say, no, absolutely. You're never that. So even if you talk in the book, we get an example. If you happen to be the only white, Christian, male, Norwegian, 25-year-old billionaire, <laughs> you, you, there's only one of you in the entire planet, if it's all those categories, you're still not an individual, according to critical social theory. You're merely part of all of these gargantuan oppressor groups. That's it. <laughs> they never get down to the level of an individual because it's all about power. So all you did see you is you, you're the possessor of all these different forms of social power. That's what you are. And in this essay, Robin D'Angelo, I think we quote her saying that individualism must be rejected. It's actually a facade that masks oppression. So she would actually, I'd say, you have to view things in collective terms. And if you, you can't do that if you're focusing on individuals. So at the heart, so this is, again, a reason why Christians need to understand the, the not just this glib, flippant, gotcha responses. They have to really understand the theory. Because the theory will, is always looking at everyone in terms of groups and power dynamics, and never in terms of an individual person making choices. And D'Angelo says that in White Fragility, Mm -hmm. Doug, in the context of being pro-identity politics, (laughs) actually pro-identity politics. So individualism is rejected in terms of a way to think about society and communities and culture. And that's that's a pronounced approach, but it's one that is not a, a secret to this campaign. And, and I did want to mention that we engage over 200 primary sources when it comes to critical social theory. So we are yeah. having a range of critical theorists, some that are directly involved in their specific actual critical social theory knowledge area, and then others that are engaging in more broader things like anti-racism, critical social justice. And different perspectives around individualism 
permeate some of these different critical theories in the weeds, but overall, the tradition itself is pushing for that group identity over individual identity. How does that then play in to the lived experience thing? Like if we're not just individuals and we are part of a tribe, like I'm, I'm white, Neil, you're part Indian, Pat, I haven't, you look white to me from the screen here. I guess that's how you, I don't know, maybe you don't identify as, you just identify as Pat. I actually have a little bit of Cherokee in me. Okay, yes. good. So every now and then, I will mention that. Do you that. have more than Elizabeth Warren does? I actually do, yes. <laughs> I, I do have a, a great-grandfather, it's my understanding, that had a strong percentage. Okay, so I, all right. It's a, I get a good tan at the beach when I was a, a, a kid, <laughs> not, to get, not to speak too much about this, but my mom would go uh, look for her native Indian boy as, as she was kind of thinking about it because I was standing out at the, the pool where I was in a predominantly white neighborhood pool. So I do have my skin okay. has some of the benefits of my Cherokee heritage. So. so why does individualism as bad not conflict with their value of lived experience? Good question. So again, yeah. this is where the Great theory, question. understanding the theory is important. So your lived experience is shaped by your social location, meaning where you fall in these power dynamics. So for example, lived experience, that way they use the term, would refer to my lived experience as a man, as a half Indian person, as an educated person. So those are the categories that would shape my lived experience. My lived experience, when they use that term, they're not referring to, say, the house I live in. Or they're not referring to where I grew up or where I went to school. It's moral in terms of, again, those broad categories of oppressor oppressed. That's why you hear people even reflexively will say, as a white man or as a Hispanic woman. They're not saying as a resident of Durham, usually. I mean, this is my, here's, my, here's my belief about, about racism as someone who owns a car. That's not, it's, it's all about demographics and then yeah. which power groups you belong to as oppressor or oppressed, then that gives you, that shapes your uh, outlook on reality. So, so for example, you know, a straight white male is blinded by his privilege. So when he speaks, you're going to immediately think that he's overlooking the reality of social injustice because uh, he has both conscious and subconscious reasons to ignore the reality of oppression and ignore the, all the advantages that his straight white masculinity has purchased him. In contrast, when a, a black lesbian speaks out of her lived experience, you're going to assume, according to the critical social theory, that she has unique insight into reality of her mm. oppressions as a black person, as a woman, and as a lesbian in a heteronormative white supremacist patriarchy. So again, that's so they're, they're never appealing to your actual like life history. Like, well, I grew up here. I went to this school. I have this is my wife. This is her profession. These are my that's not part of the, what it means to have yeah, a lived experience. Yeah. It's all okay. about how do you fit into the social binary? How does power act on you to shape the way that you view reality? It's too bad that Donald Trump was the person who called the bluff of Elizabeth Warren on that because no one, would, no one took him seriously because they're just, you know, it was just antics and trolling. Whereas it seems like her being called out on that, going and getting a test, and it shows up way less than she was claiming, you know, as a white person claiming oppressor group, You'd think that that would have sort of diminished in the minds of those who think that lived experiences gives you some sort of purchase on authority. Well, and then this is the thing we, one thing we bring out in the book too, 
you bring out the fact that so there's some element of truth in a lot of these theories. We actually have a whole chapter devoted to these positive insights of critical social theorists. So there's not, it's not like there's nothing there. There is a right. sense in yeah. which, yeah, we're, of course we're shaped by our ethnicity, our class, our all these things yeah. do shape the way we, we reality. And they do shape things like privilege. So we do receive unearned advantages from all kinds of things. You know, as a man, I have unearned advantages in some areas as a man that my wife doesn't have. Okay, that's, and that's true. What these theories fail to take into account, generally speaking, is that privilege, for example, is always contextual. Mm-hmm. So, for example, why does Elizabeth Warren claim to have a Native American ancestry? Why would she do that? If, it's not, if, if that's an oppressed group and it's going to give her disadvantage socially, why would she voluntarily claim it and make a false claim to begin with? The answer is it does not purely confer disadvantage. In some context, it confers advantage for her to say, I'm part Native right. American. It'll right, make people right. more inclined to listen to her. Now, again, that's not universal. In some contexts, people will discriminate against her on the basis of perceiving her as a Native American. Our point is that whether you have privilege or not depends on where you are, like physically. So I say an evangelical Christian will have privilege, presumably, in some deep red, rural, highly evangelical county in the South, say. But if an evangelical Christian flies to a highly progressive urban college campus, well, they will not have privilege as an evangelical Christian. They will actually be looked down on and have social, their settled status revoked because yeah, of their beliefs. Right, yeah, yeah, so yeah. It really depends on your actual community, whether you are your identity confers you with an advantage or a disadvantage. That's a thing that's often yeah. missed by critical social theorists. Yeah. You had a comment there. You had a few positive things to say. And I want to talk about that in, in part two of this conversation. Before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about queer theory because queer theory, the word itself might be a little misleading for those who don't understand the term. I have to say, this was like the most disturbing chapter of the book. And I hate to say that it was the most disturbing because the slavery chapter probably should have been the most disturbing because that's history. And this is a little bit on the theory side, but page 198 in a copy that I have, which was an advanced copy, I read this and I literally wrote in the margins, WTF. Like, and you probably might know which part I'm talking about. And I think the, the key question you can lead up to answering it is, are these people coming for our kids? Because I think that's what the alleged threat is by a lot of people on the right is that these people are coming for your kids. And if there's any evidence in that direction at all, it would come from queer theory. And why is that? Well, I would first mention that queer theory certainly is a critical social theory that is understanding power relative to sexuality and gender. Okay, so we just want to start there. And queer theory's campaign is to deconstruct certain norms that are connected to sexuality and gender that it finds problematic. And so heterosexuality, for instance, is a norm that queer theory will problematize and challenge and critique as it promotes homosexuality as it promotes perspectives that are against heteronormativity. So that deconstruction of sexuality and gender doesn't stop there. Queer theory is, takes its cues from post-structuralism uh, and postmodernism relative to Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and their massive deconstruction campaign relative to a number of things that permeate society. And so queer theory takes its cues from that and consequently, doesn't stop at sexuality and gender. And we talk in our book about how queer theory has a way of deconstructing theology, for instance. And there are queer theorists who 
are religious yep. and claim uh, Christian identity and are deconstructing theology. Another thing relative to children that you bring that up, issues around age and age discrimination and how we should think about age and how we should think about issues age of, of consent is a social construct, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right. And how we think about pedastry. This is not off limits of queer theory. In fact, it is downstream from its approach to deconstruct everything. And so that means you, you ask about issues of children. Queer theory is taken seriously this idea of whether children should not be discriminated against as it pertains to sexuality. So what they mean by that is, should we now be thinking about sexuality and children in ways that are radically different than what society has traditionally thought in terms of protecting children from uh, sexuality and protecting children from those kinds of themes. And so you see a press on the language. Instead of pedophilia, now we're talking about minor attracted persons. And so that is an assault on language to soften the soil, so to speak, and the ground to allow for different thinking relative to children and sexuality. Now, we will say that there are members of the LGBTQIA plus community that reject pedophilia, certainly, that they are against pedophilia. They think it's immoral. They think people should go to prison who engage in it. With that said, the knowledge area of queer theory, the logical conclusions that will happen if you take the perspectives and the pre-commitments and the ideas of queer theory to their logical conclusion, now you are dealing with looking at sexualizing children and that being a positive thing, that being viewed not as something as a negative issue in society, but that being a societal good, because now you're empowering children. You're giving agency to children. You are no longer being authoritarian over them and suppressing their growth and their empowerment. And as you know, you've read the book, we unpack that and we argue that that is quite pernicious and quite egregious. So from yeah. that standpoint, when we're now thinking about what's happening on the ground in terms of drag queen story hour, why is this something that is being heralded as a positive, good thing in certain contexts? Well, it's because it's downstream from the ideas and the core values and commitments of queer theory. Hmm. Neil, do you have anything to add to that before we uh, wrap up this part? I just briefly add that we don't just speculate about the logical implications of queer theory. We quote queer theorists saying wow. things like, we yeah. need to question the age of consent. We need to empower children to make sexual choices, et cetera, et cetera. We talk, talked about, are they coming for your kids? We have queer theorists saying, we want to educate children about sexuality at a young age. <laughs> so it's, we're not merely connecting the dots. We are also yeah. quoting verbatim from prominent queer theorists saying, absolutely, this is a major source of discussion within queer theory. So yeah. again, we're not just okay. being, oh, this is a boogeyman. No, no, we're reading these sources and they are actually, and if you notice in the book, there are a number of quotes. We have long quotes where there are brackets. And, and the reason for that is our publisher asked us to please <laughs> take out explicit, sexually explicit terminology and material. And we, you know, after some thought we did, we agreed to it. But if you read the actual, and you can, the, sure. the words you are can, there, you can tell what they're saying. But if you actually read the original sources, it's even worse. 
know. We oh, yeah, that. no, it, it's it got the impression across. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's clear from what we're taking out. But the point is, we actually softened the actual language of the queer theorists for the purpose of not making people shut the book and, and vomit. Yeah. But it is extremely <laughs> explicit in the queer theorists. It mostly worked. I, I wanted to shut the, throw the book and vomit. Yeah. Like it, there were, <laughs> and honestly, the, the, the comment that I made in my little mar mark in the margins was because you were quoting people and there are sociologists who say that there's no, there's no consensus that sexualizing children is harmful. It's yeah. like, wait, what? That was just, that was mind-boggling to me. It's they probably the one inter, single thing. Intergenerational yeah. sex is the word that Jagos uses. Oh intergenerational gosh. sex. Intergenerational. That's the euphemism for pedophilia. Which is interesting because you could think about that as like, say, a wealthy old billionaire who has a 30-year-old wife. <laughs> oh, no, she doesn't mean that. <laughs> That's yeah. not, I know that. I know. But like, you, it seems, it's, it's like, oh, intergenerational. Okay, old man, young, youngish woman. Nope, that's not what they mean. Mm. Like, that's part of the language games being played here is that there's this like, well, well, we just mean honest history or we just mean, that's why these terms, while technically in some ways more accurate, I mean, in, in a way, minor attracted persons is a accurate neutral-ish term, but it desensitizes you to think of it as bad by doing that. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.